I was just going to jump in and build on that because I think Beth so beautifully captured the human element of the category. Hey, and I'm going to come in plug. with that category. There's the plug yeah. we needed. <laughs> Unintentional as well. I didn't even mean to. everybody and welcome back to the human element Kara's podcast focused on finding ways to inject humanity and insight into modern marketing today i'm here with bethany blanchard strategy lead and anika barrett strategy director at Kara australia welcome both thanks for joining us hi hi thanks for having us before we dive in do you mind giving us a little bit about your roles and you know what you do on a day-to-day at Kara australia yeah sure so i'm bethany and i head up strategy in melbourne so I lead an amazing team of strategists and connections planners, one of which is here with me, Annika. It's way too kind an introduction. But yes, I'm Annika. I work in the strategy team in Melbourne, Australia as a strategy director. Yeah, very lucky to work with a great group of clients and a great group of strategists and very excited to be here on the podcast today. Awesome. So your team has recently released a piece reviewing beauty industry in 2021. Let's start with like, where did that come from? How did you go about that? You know, kind of the initial work. We originally, so one of our clients locally is L'Oreal. It's obviously one of the major players in the beauty business. And during COVID, I think like a lot of other clients that we work across, it sort of came out of nowhere as a big surprise and really shocked every industry. So earlier in 2020, we pulled together... I guess, a big trends piece around what was happening in the market from, you know, a cultural perspective, a consumer perspective, also a commerce perspective in the beauty space as a bit of a, here's the state of play right now. Here's what we're expecting to happen in the future. Here's how we can prepare for that and pivot now in the moment. And that piece of work was in May last year, which I can't believe how quickly that year's gone, but we're almost a year on now. So we thought, you know, it's time. We're really lucky to be in a market in Australia and New Zealand where I want to cross my fingers and touch wood, but we are sort of living in a fairly post-pandemic world, which I feel really lucky to say. We've had some little outbreaks in different states and little lockdowns, but we're pretty lucky that life's sort of returning back to normal. So it felt like we needed to you know, pick this piece of work back up and have a look at what we predicted in 2020 and what the global market and the local market was looking like as we entered 2021. So in this report, what has been the most dramatic shifts in the beauty category from pre, during and post pandemic for the team? I think what's been so striking to me is the recognition of value of the category to people's lives beyond the functional, beyond the aesthetic. And this is one of the reasons why we wanted to do the report. You know, we talk about empathy mapping at CARA and what's been so powerful seeing reflected in research, whether that's trends or in qual, and, you know, I can say reflects my own experience in lockdown in Melbourne in our, I think it was 112 days of extremely hard lockdown <laughs> confined to 5Ks. But it was the elevated role that beauty played. So, you know, it was a reward, you know, getting those online deliveries where the postman is is like Santa or it was a space to experiment and play or it was a way to regain a small sense of normality and that ritual in your morning or it was a space to, you know, not use cosmetics and actually transform your skin and invest in skincare, which of course we've seen a massive rise in. So 
the shift, like so many things last year, is a real reassessment of the role and the value that that category plays. So it was funny, actually, our client, uh, L'Oreal, she was on a podcast before the pandemic, early last year, and she joked that the bottom line of the industry is that we sell hope in a jar. And I love that line so much because, I mean, it's obviously really funny, but after 2020, I think there's something really poignant in that too. It was that thing that allowed us to hold into, you know, our sense of ourselves. So, you know, we do see that there's post-pandemic, you know, some shoppers are trading down, you know, choosing lower priced products or some are turning to e-com some are consolidating their beauty regimes, but the value is a lot more nuanced and it's about experience and pleasure and access and ease. And I think that's been a big shift. I think I'm going to come in with my category hat on and add a couple of shifts that I've been noticing as well, if that's okay. Of course. So that's something we talk about a lot, and I'm sure that's true globally too, is that COVID didn't necessarily like create new trends or things that came totally out of the blue, but it exponentially accelerated existing trends. And I think that's true across all categories and particularly in beauty. And there were kind of two key things that were happening in beauty before COVID that have really accelerated throughout. And the first is really skinification, which is a huge buzzword, but essentially it's this idea of the importance of skincare to consumers and different categories across beauty, bringing skincare benefits and skincare terms to other products. So we're seeing skincare in cosmetics products, things like BB creams and CC creams and moisturizing illuminators and all those sort of products. And that was really an evolving trend before COVID. So skincare was driving category growth. It was the major growth factor in the beauty and personal care category overall. And yeah, COVID absolutely accelerated that. So, you know, stay-at-home orders meant we were wearing less makeup. Wearing masks on our faces meant we were getting mask knee, of all things. Stress-induced breakouts, more time spent on screens meant we were staring at our faces more than ever before and noticing the problems with our skin. So consumers really focused in on skincare and brands recognized that and really sort of pivoted into it. So the skincare and cosmetics became like a real emphasis, but also I think in the last sort of six to 12 months, there's also been a shift in brands starting to talk about the skinification of hair care, which is really interesting. So brands are introducing sort of multi-step processes to hair care rituals. So, you know, there was the Clinique like three-step process that was really iconic back in the day. That sort of thing is coming into hair care and you're starting to see celebrities as well in this space. So Priyanka Chopra has launched a hair care brand. Cardi B is about to do it as well. So skincare and skincare language and benefits is sort of infiltrating everything in the beauty space. That's so interesting that you say that because there's like a TikTok, you know, obviously beauty is huge on TikTok, but there's a girl I follow religiously, Lily Van Brooklyn, and she has this incredible like blonde, like mermaid hair. And her whole story is how she restored like damaged blonde hair and, and made it incredible. But she approaches her tutorials like a skincare routine. It, the, the amount of steps in it is incredible, but it's exactly that. It's taking the language of what we would associate with skincare and bringing it to other areas. And you hear this in terms 
kinds of, you know, fragrance, like fragrance wardrobes and, and things like that. But yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think a lot of people are talking about, you know, skincare surge and skincare is this driver of growth and it is. But I think looking at the impact of skincare on the broader category is interesting. Mm. And it's interesting that you mentioned fragrance because I've even seen a few fragrance brands that are starting to talk about the skincare benefits of their fragrances. So the fragrance itself and the ingredients in it being able to reduce blemishes and things like that, which is really interesting. So it's sort of infiltrating all categories across beauty. And the second trend, which again is something that everyone's been talking about and again existed before COVID is this trend towards digital. So we know that digital e-commerce is huge across industries and particularly in beauty and direct-to-consumer brands and celebrity brands and influencer brands have done such a good job in capitalizing on that, you know, over recent years. But with COVID, everyone's more online than ever. We were all stuck at home. Beth was buying <laughs> all her beauty and skincare products via e-com. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's just provided this real poignant opportunity for brands to, you know, capture that new road to revenue. And I think we're going to see that be an increasing focus going forward. E-commerce absolutely is a key focus, but also this kind of pivot into e-expertise. So a lot of brands took their in-store experiences and the best parts of those experiences, like one-on-one consults with experts and took that online. You go on all the major players' websites, you go on, you know, the websites of NARS and Mac and L'Oreal and you see these virtual experiences, these virtual one-on-one consults, these AR try-on functionalities. And I think that's something we're going to see persist absolutely into the future. Yeah. So actually, you mentioned this and you even mentioned this in the report that consumers are more conscious around the quality and convenience and cost, all of the things combined now for, for beauty and skincare. But what does the consumer value mean in this category as we look post-pandemic? How does that value shift? Has it shifted? I think it definitely has. I feel like Beth touched on it really nicely before as well. This conversation around value is really, really nuanced off the back of the pandemic. It was interesting reading a lot of reports and expert predictions last year. And a lot of experts were talking about the fact that there was going to be this huge economic impact across the board, people were going to be suffering financially, and that would drive this like massive trade down from premium products to mass cosmetics, mass products across beauty. And I think to a point we have seen that, but not at the scale and not the same experience across the board. I think the reality of the pandemic and how it affected people in terms of what they valued and what value meant to them was really, really nuanced. And I know in Australia in particular, we saw a lot of people were out of work. A lot of people had reduced hours and reduced pay. But then there were also a group of people who their work and their income was relatively untouched by their pandemic. They were able to pivot to working from home, maintain their income And because we really couldn't do anything (laughs) for a long stretch of time, they managed to actually save money. So there's a group of people who are worse off financially and then this group of people who are actually better off financially off the back of COVID lockdowns. And that's created this really nuanced environment for the conversation around value in the beauty category. So 
Beth mentioned before, and it's absolutely true, some people are looking for cheaper products. They're trading down to mass products. You know, some people are pivoting towards multifunctional products, which is a big trend in the industry as well. You know, why would I buy three different products when I can get, you know, them all in one simple, easy to apply product for the price of one rather than three? But at the same time, I think the conversation around value is really evolving beyond price. There's this this trend, you know, driven by digital of this really, really educated consumer in the space. We've got access to so much information. We can access product reviews. We can access so many brands, more brands than we ever have been able to before. So we can really focus in on quality and finding the best performing products for our needs over, you know, investing in a quantity of products. And I think the conversation around value also sort of goes beyond, you know, value in terms of money or value in terms of quality to what we value as consumers from a human perspective and how that's kind of been reappraised over the pandemic. I think it was a pretty crazy year all around. You know, I I find it shocking that the huge bushfires in Australia, that was at the start of 2020 and it feels like an absolute lifetime ago. So, you know, issues around climate change are still really poignant for consumers, you know, sustainability questions. We've had this huge cultural reckoning around, you know, race. And I think that's played out, you know, not just in the States, but worldwide and here in Australia as well. So I think people are really really reassessing what's important to them, what brands they want to buy into, what brands they want to align with and expecting more from brands. So it's not just delivering, you know, high performing products at a really good price point. It's, you know, what does your brand stand for? How are you delivering me value as a consumer? How are you appealing to my values, whatever they are? And that's such an important point around when we do talk about 2020 and actually into 2021, there isn't a uniform experience of, you know, the pandemic or anything else. Of course, in Australia, we had bushfires and then actually at the same time, and in fact, in the same areas, there's been floods, you know, so it hasn't just been that that singular issue. But yes, we had people, a lot of people like us in the industry that probably had more money, even if there were job pay cuts or um, if there was reduced hours because we weren't going out as much, but then there were people who lost jobs. But one thing that I found interesting, and it's true of other categories that I've worked on as well, that actually regardless of income, it's where your values sit that determines what you're spending it on. So one of the things that we found is like under 35s might actually have less spending or disposable income than over 35s, but they were actually spending more on cosmetics, which was fascinating. So again, it goes to to values, which I think is kind of interesting. I think that's definitely interesting. But I, I also look back at my own personal spending that is completely accurate. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I definitely spent on some, some ridiculous things under 35. <laughs> so going back to e-commerce a bit, you reported, and I found this really fascinating. So brands such as L'Oreal being able to offset more than 50% of their sales lost in physical stores across the globe through e-commerce activities. That's huge, right? But now over the course of 18 months, online purchasing has become the norm for a lot of brands across many categories. In particular for this beauty category, what are some of the evolving trends in e-commerce that the team has identified that are helping these brands actually stand out from their competition now that e-commerce is just the baseline? It's a great question. I think as always with a lot of things in terms of tech and digital experiences, you have to look to China. China is just worlds ahead of the rest of us in terms of what they're doing in this space. I think 
you know, we've had social commerce for a while and that's going to continue to adapt and improve. So being able to buy products from your social feed in the environment of that social media app you're on. But what I'm finding most interesting and coming out of China is this trend of live commerce. And it's starting to impact in the West as well, which is really interesting. But essentially, live commerce is an influencer live streaming about a product. So that could be literally talking about the benefits of the product, doing a tutorial with the product, engaging with that that beauty product in real time. And then the people watching that live stream can purchase the product within the live stream. So it's kind of this crazy new frontier of e-commerce that is really taking off in China and brands have been playing into this space in 2020 in North America. And I think we can only expect that to accelerate. In terms of e-commerce itself, as you said, it's really becoming a baseline. You know, you need to have exceptional e-commerce functionality. You need to have a seamless e-commerce experience. But what I'm finding really interesting in this space is brands who are sort of taking that online e-commerce experience a step further. So we saw last year a couple of brands really reimagine their digital store spaces to almost replicate and maybe even a better version of their their in-store store experiences. So Longcom was one brand and another was Charlotte Tilbury and they launched virtual flagship stores, which I think is a really interesting concept. So rather than just launching a new product through a standard sort of e-commerce website experience, they created a virtual store on a landing page where you could literally go into different rooms in this flagship. In the Charlotte Tilbury example, she, an avatar of her, guided you through the experience, which is amazing. It's just this whole new approach to the e-commerce experience. And what they've done exceptionally well is, you know, these big brands, they have so much technology at their fingertips. You know, they have virtual try-on through AR. They have, you know, AI technologies that can, you know, scan your face and match products based on your individual needs. And they were able to integrate all these offerings into this virtual retail store that you could digitally wander through. And it's just such an interesting experience. So I think that's something that I would absolutely watch and pay attention to brands using digital places as spaces that you can interact with, not just as channels to sell products or reach consumers through. One of the things we talk about a lot is like the expectation economy and this idea that once a brand innovates in a certain area and customers see it, they expect it as standard. So it almost no longer becomes innovative, it becomes the baseline. And the fact that we're seeing this globally, that's going to be the absolute baseline customer expectation. And it it can go across industries and categories and products. But yes, the work that the Charlotte Tilbury is, is a great example. I mean, that brand has been incredible on social media. I feel like I'm always getting those ads on Instagram, but yeah, it's an incredible store. And I think that this is just going to be the baseline. So, if, and then it's just what's the next thing and what's the next. Yeah, agreed. And we're also sort of seeing the flip in physical retail spaces as well. So there's this huge trend towards omni-channel 
brand experiences and it's something that, you know, big digital players within brands like L'Oreal talk about a lot, that you can't treat physical and digital as a separate Separate. spaces and separate phenomenon. They're absolutely things that need to work together. So you should be bringing the best of your online and your IRL experiences to every brand interaction. So a lot of brands are using their physical retail spaces and the footfall they get there and they're bringing their highest, most innovative tech to those environments. So you see things like, I get really excited about this because I think it's very cool, but infrared mirrors in store that, you know, color match foundation shades to your skin. Or again, that AR virtual try-on technology where you can stand in front of a mirror and have it show up on your face. So you can sample more products more efficiently in a really interactive way. And also brands playing into this, you know, increased concern around hygiene and thinking about touch-free in-store sampling. So there's going to be a lot more voice-activated mirror experiences, voice-activated AR experiences. So I think that blending of physical and digital and bringing technology to physical spaces as well as bringing that kind of immersive brand experience to digital spaces. That's really the way forward. So yeah, expect omni-channel to be (laughs) a category buzzword going forward. The beauty industry is extremely fascinating because they're probably one of the only categories that can really get away with like already doing AR and VR in full capacity. Like if you're not there, you're probably lagging behind at this point, specifically for beauty. But consumer expectations of, you know, brand purpose for beauty has really drastically shifted this past year to 18 months. You went really in depth on the report, which I absolutely love on many of the different aspects of what actual brand purpose means across these beauty brands. Can you give us a little bit of insight around some of those key points? Yeah. So obviously the world went through an incredible period of unrest last year and One of the things I thought was interesting, we saw this stat that the number of public protests around the world has risen by 10% each year since 2009, obviously coming to a head last year with big movements around Black Lives Matter and climate change. But I think what's unique around that momentum is it signals a greater empathy and kind of collective consciousness around diversity and inclusion, which is really exciting. And Gen Z in particular are leading the charge. And obviously they're about to command a much greater share of spending power and really act as influencers or detractors for, for brands. I mean, they're already huge influencers in the beauty space as it is. So I think the first thing that we talk about in the report is, you know, diversity as default. Diversity is reality. You know, that, that you know, we talk about customer expectations, that is the baseline. It's expected to be default across businesses and beauties, no exception. So, you know, Gen Z is the most ethnically diverse generation in history and they account for about 40% of global consumers. So they're really going to have that expectation. So before 2020, brands had responded, you know, with kind of acts of performative activism and kind of less committal messages of solidarity to social media. But in 2020, the brands obviously faced a cultural reckoning and people were demanding more. So, you know, many brands launched scaled-up diversity and inclusion initiatives like L'Oreal's Global Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Board and some retailers like Sephora made commitments to stop more Black-owned beauty brands. So I think race was one, but gender, you know, was really important. Particularly younger generations are 
embracing gender fluidity, rejecting the notion that certain categories only cater to certain genders. And so beauty brands are really beginning to look beyond their traditional female customer base. And Maybelline's a great example there with Manny Gutierrez and obviously James Charles for CoverGirl. And then other brands like MAC, Tom Ford, Marc Jacobs, they've launched lines of gender-neutral makeup. But then obviously age is another one, age inclusion coming into focus. You know, we've seen a focus on menopause beauty, which is really, really important. L'Oreal actually globally did a campaign with Vogue and it was called the the non-issue and it was about age not being an issue. Um, And it was an 80-page booklet that really featured older models and that was incredibly powerful for, for them to look at that. So I think in terms of implication, you know, we talk about brands being like glass boxes. I think in the past you could kind of, you know, be that opaque box and really focus on what your marketing is saying. Now you really need to practice what you preach. You need to focus on your internal practices before making big statements about social justice causes in your marketing. You need to be inclusive in your language. So it isn't just about women. No one's skin is normal, you know, in order to appeal to that new, more diverse generation of customers. And it's about being transparent and truly committed to diversity initiatives. So this is a cultural shift, not a consumer campaign. And I think also looking at the long game. So, you know, Gen Z are not only a rising force, but like millennials before them, they're also the social tide of culture. So winning them through your authenticity and actions is going to be essential. People are taking note. A great example during lockdown last year was this website, Did They Help? So it was kind of a purpose scoreboard. So they were, you know, brands were under scrutiny, looking at how, whether or not they did step up. This was launched in early 2000 and it made a public record of brand actions, whether good or bad, and that was readily available. And so, you know, this idea of brands being glass boxes, I think, has never been more powerful. I think there's really two key drivers in this space that are making it really interesting. So digital and our access to digital technology, our ability to call out brands as consumers and hold them to account is incredibly powerful. And I think that we're seeing that play out more and more around all kinds of different causes. So as Beth mentioned, you know, brands are being called out for performative activism at a scale I think we haven't haven't seen before because we have so much more power as consumers. There was heaps of backlash, as I'm sure you guys saw, around the Black Lives Matter movement and brands posting black squares to social when... You know, it's so easy for us as consumers now and as much more educated consumers in the space to, you know, see that their employees aren't made up of people of colour or see that the board of directors aren't representative of the community or, you know, look back at the digital trail of campaigns and see that this hasn't been a consistent message in the long term. So I think it's just something that brands need to be more and more aware of that, you know, Consumers have so much more power and they have the power to call you out and they will. And I think we're seeing that more and more. And I think brands can benefit in that space as well. Like if you're authentic and you're transparent with your efforts, and I think a lot of brands have been, a lot of the big players in beauty came out with their diversity numbers internally and made those public. And I think that sort of translates to a number of other issues in terms of, you know, climate and sustainability, you know, all these other purpose-driven causes that we're asking beauty brands to align with. 
you know, if you're transparent around what you're doing in the space, where your shortfalls are, where you can make gains, what progress you are making, I think consumers are more forgiving. It's just when they feel like you're holding something back or, you know, being performative and not being authentic. So brands like L'Oreal have done some really great work in this space, particularly with sustainability. So they've released things like digital labeling for products. So it's being trialed with Garnier in France, but will be rolled out more globally. But it's essentially digital labels that you can engage with to understand how sustainable each product in their range is. And it looks from, you know, sourcing to packaging right through right through the supply chain. Things like that, giving more power to consumers, being more transparent, acknowledging that we're not just going to, you know, mindlessly buy into products, we're going to critically view them and critically view your brand. That's really important. And I think to Beth's point as well, Gen Z is a huge driving force and a younger consumer is a huge driving force. You know, this is the most ethnically diverse generation in history. I wish I was one of them because I feel like they will save the world, but that's possibly putting too much pressure on them. (laughs) You know, so we had another podcast recording this morning and someone literally said the exact same thing, that Gen Z is giving them hope and they will save the world. So we're putting a lot on Gen Z right now. It feels like the future is in good hands. I think it is. Yeah, Yeah. I think it is. I think the thing that you both are saying that's really important is brand purpose, again, is another word that the industry uses quite often, but one-time initiatives are not going to win over consumers. And they haven't in a while, but the investments need to be made in order to make those long-term strides and making sure that your brand purpose has a larger mission that kind of red thread throughout all of your campaigns. So you did mention in the report, Fenty Beauty and, you know, Rare are two recently new product launches or even company launches, if you will, that play in a specific space that they believe they firmly believe in and all of their products are around that brand purpose. So mental health, sustainability, diversity, inclusion. And I think that's really, really important, but also they're, they're playing in a new space of influencer. So that leads me to my next question. This category specifically, what is the role of social and influencers and how has that shifted if it has within the pandemic? It's everything. It's it's interesting. We've been doing some core research at the moment and it's coming through just how powerful it is. They are the first port of call across the board, regardless of, of product. It's also seen as really honest media, which I think is really interesting. So, you know, I was flicking through my TikTok this morning and, you know, there's a trend which is, you know, let me tell you as a former Sephora beauty advisor, which products are actually worth your money. And, you know, they can be really brutal. Um, you know, there's one, a sorry, no, I have to tell you, no, not worth it. And then one is, yes, unfortunately, it is worth the hype. You know, it is that that <laughs> I spent a lot of money on an expensive beauty product and it worked. But, you know, they really are the first port of call. I think the um, influencers have changed as well. So it's not just the big models. You do see when, when asked to list customers, will talk about Hailey Bieber and Kendall Jenner and, and that sort of thing. But the TikTok influencers are huge. And one of the interesting things that was coming out was actually the... F- in reversal of influence. So in the past, daughters might learn makeup from their mothers and that that was kind of a passing down. I think that does happen at an early age. But what we were finding, and TikTok was a powerful influence here, that actually it was um, mums learning makeup techniques from their daughter's TikTok, so watching it together. And, you know, there's so many trends there around, you know, like I, I definitely trialled 
you know, like at St. Chan contouring, there's amazing trends there. So other influences are, you know, the makeup artists of celebrities. So Kim Kardashian's makeup artist, Mario, is now a celeb in his own right and has a huge following. So the other thing that's really interesting is how niche some of these social trends can be. So there's whole TikTok areas around like hooded eye tricks. So it's becoming not just influence around a person, but a particular technique. One thing as well is Vogue does beauty tutorials, which is Get Ready With Me. And the Madison View one recently is absolutely going off. So, you know, it's a Vogue video series that's now spawning its own like TikTok craze. And then you have Sephora beauty experts reviewing the product. So it really surprised me. Social has always been powerful and important, but I think with the different um, platforms that we have, it's only more so. Again, yeah, influencers and social media are huge. You know, we've seen brands launch without traditional media investment and have incredible success and do that through either having a founder who is a celebrity or an influencer in their own right or just really powerfully leveraging the power of social media and the influence that you can find there. And it's, yeah, it's really a brave new world when it comes to beauty. I think influencers themselves, yeah, they're sort of doing both. So they're acting as drivers to existing brands or there's a lot of TikTok influencers who are launching their own brands. So like Addison Rae has partnered to launch like Item Beauty. So they're founding brands in their own right. So I think they're adding to... I guess the clutter and the competitiveness in the industry, there are so many brands to choose from and influencers and celebrities are really, you know, gunning for some of that market share. But we're seeing that social and influencers and product reviews are more important than ever. So it's not enough to see a beauty brand, you know, a a new product launch through an advertising campaign. We're seeing Gen Z consumers in particular will go to online reviews and they will read all the reviews, not just the good ones. And if you only have good reviews, they will call you out because, you know, that's not possible for you to only have good reviews. I know Frank Body was caught up in a big controversy about that a little while ago for not publishing critical and negative reviews on their website. So yeah, it's it's huge. Influencers are huge. They can have a huge impact on brands. And I think the threat for bigger players comes from these influencers pivoting to create their own product lines. Another interesting one is actually like fan bases and the communities that pop up around brands, particularly those D2C brands um, and how they become their own influencers. So, you know, Glossier famously launched their, well, it was crowdsourced their jelly cleanser, but then they launched it by giving it to their number one fans and followers instead of like beauty influencers. That was a really interesting space. And I think that that's only going to grow these kind of communities and fans as influencers. And then the other thing which to talk about is obviously gaming. We really need to think about gaming as another social platform now. It is, you know, instead of a game, it is a place. And there's lots of brands that have done fascinating things here. I mean, the probably the main exciting example is Tatcha. They launched their rice cleanser on Animal Crossing New Horizons. And so, yeah, like such a fascinating way. They didn't do it with, you know, a, a big launch or gifting it to influencers. It was it was within a game. And this, I know Annika has thoughts on this. There's so many exciting things, but I think that idea of social media already potentially is, is that third space or third place. I think games are even more that, you know, so there was a famous tweet about Fortnite being not a game, but a place. 
obviously lots of people talk about, you know, Travis Scott's um, performance there, but I think thinking it as that, thinking of it as a social platform, thinking of it as a way for people to experiment and play is really, really fascinating. I'm officially obsessed with gaming. I'm convinced that I need to get a Nintendo Switch and play Animal Crossing because all I want to do is like wear Givenchy virtual makeup in-game and like yeah. frolic through a field of flowers. I am not a gamer at all, but if you told me that there was like something of skincare hiding in a game, I would definitely be totally. the first one in life. Oh, there is so much, honestly. So I will many. send you a long it's, email after this. Right, it's well, amazing. That is terrifying. I don't think my husband <laughs> will thank you for that. But uh. <laughs> the number of brands playing in the space is incredible. Nas is doing virtual makeup. Givenchy has virtual makeup. All in Animal yeah. Crossing. Mac did it with The Sims. It's a really, really cool evolving space. The Mac one was interesting because that one was... So and sometimes they like dress to do this as well, where they level lock um, certain looks or fashion or hair, um, mm-hmm. hairstyles. But Mac partnered with Sims, but then released the line. So it was that thing of actually it being a virtual thing that then became in the real world and it sold out. Um, the, the palettes, and they were quite, you know, lurid palettes, sold out, yeah, I think within hours. So I think that's really exciting. And you're seeing it in fashion too, this idea where the digital product is actually the end game. So, you know, we're talking about it moving into the the real world, but actually the virtual product being the end game, just to talk about fashion for a second, the creative director for Gucci has, has just released virtual sneakers. And that's really interesting. One of the things that we've kind of been talking about is without wanting to get into like NFTs, the potential for those to actually become one-off ownable items and a a digital existence in themselves. I think this is fascinating and I'm really excited to see where it goes. Thanks for teasing out a podcast topic that we will probably be landing on in May. (laughs) So we may have you back at that point. Oh, amazing. Oh God, no, don't don't get me to explain NFTs. (laughs) So one last question before we get into the lightning round. For some of the smaller beauty brands that might not be able to play in this space right now, we're talking about a lot of, you know, bigger ideas. Mm-hmm. What's one thing you would advise to those brands right now that they should be doing at more of a, you know, practical next step? I think I would say, you know, invest in social, invest in influencers be where your audience are. I think being people first is really important, particularly a lot of these new smaller brands are targeting a Gen Z consumer and, you know, this is where they are. They're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they're in gaming. So play into those spaces. I know a lot of brands, you know, they won't do paid activity, but they'll send product to influencers. And, you know, free samples was something Estee Lauder did to launch her brand, you know, decades ago and it worked. You know, it's a huge brand now. Lots of brands are sending samples to, you know, Twitch streamers and things like that who are then getting the word out there organically for these brands. So I think play into social, play into digital. You might not be able to do, you know, AR functionality on your site, but you can do things like foundation matching quizzes through really simple functionalities. So I think I would just focus in on your social and your digital experience and how, yeah, you can engage within Gen Z communities of influence to really drive that uptake. I would say that, and I think this is advice to big or small brands, that understanding trends or a landscape isn't going to be the thing that differentiates your brand. It's your ability to react to it. So you have to be willing, this kind of goes down to his point, you have to be willing to try things that you haven't tried before and move away from things that you've previously tried 
and have worked, but may no longer be relevant as they used to be. So D2C brands and smaller brands are really good at looking at emerging platforms and emerging landscapes and emerging audiences. And that's partly why they're really captivating because they're so nimble. But I do think that this this threat of D2C or, or those smaller brands is, is overstated because big brands, if they adopt those practices, then they already have the pre-existing penetration levels and share of spend and share of voice to win. So I would say, you know, look at emerging platforms, emerging audiences. I think that's how you win. Awesome. All right, lightning round. Favorite digital experience? So this brings together my obsession, like category obsession and gaming obsession. I feel like the coolest digital experience I've seen recently was that Balenciaga launched their full 2021 collection as a video game. So they created a custom video game to launch the collection where people could go, you know, online on their mobile, on their desktop and play this game and experience the collection in space, like on avatars in the game, wearing the new Balenciaga collection in this whole branded world, which I just think is incredible. And again, you know, you see beauty brands playing in this space too in gaming environments. So yeah, Givenchy in virtual makeup in Animal Crossing, Mac virtual makeup in The Sims. Um, But I think those brands who are treating, yeah, digital platforms, not as just like ways to push product to people, but as immersive spaces for your brand are really interesting. And again, because I'm obsessed with it, Charlotte Tilbury and Longcom, the virtual flagship stores is another just exceptionally cool way to use a digital experience and use it in a really immersive, interactive way. I'm really interested in audio social at the moment. So obviously Clubhouse is a big example of that, whether that remains the, you know, the platform of audio social or if that dies off and actually it just remains within existing social platforms. So Twitter's doing spaces. Mark Zuckerberg has said that Facebook's going to launch their own. But I think the idea of audio social is really, really fascinating in that it's very intimate. I run clubhouse rooms. I'm kind of obsessed with it. But I think it heightens this idea of the importance of audio. And we talk a lot to brands about what does your brand sound like? And, you know, we've talked about it in terms of music and a distinctive, you know, audio asset. But then what would your brand sound like conversationally, I think is really, really fascinating. So audio socially is something I'm really, really interested in. And I always talk about this as a like favorite digital experience, but I do think that Spotify's wrapped, just that turning data into stories is so interesting. And I've seen late last year, Afterpay, this, this speaks to my terrible spending habits, <laughs> Afterpay did a wrapped. And it was like, these are the Australian brands that you supported. These are the blah, blah, blah. And it was really fascinating to get that sort of analysis through data of my spend. I'd be fascinated to see if beauty platforms start doing that, whether it's Adore Beauty, Mecca, or individual brands like L'Oreal. I think you have a point there. I think we secretly love to know more stuff about ourselves. Like we like to be analyzed (laughs) by other people about the things that we already know we should probably know. Yeah. Okay. Favorite TV show to binge? Oh, can I, I'm, okay, so all I ever do is talk to my team about TV shows that I binge, but I was the biggest Succession super fan. I was watching it. It didn't really take off as much in Australia, but, um, it was just incredible. And I felt like I was talking to the team after every episode saying, I can't believe this has happened. And the last five minutes of season two were some of the best moments of TV I've seen. And one of the other very small casualties of COVID was that succession season three was delayed. So I'm hanging for it. But if I don't want that and I want 
pure comfort, it's British Bake Off all the way. <laughs> it's such a good answer. Mine's terrible. <laughs> Beth knows this about me and tells me all the time that it's very off-brand, but I'm a Star Trek obsessive, so that's what I that's what I binge watch. I, I don't know. You Trek. really went into the gaming thing, so I guess I can kind of <laughs> know the Star Trek connection, <laughs> but I don't know. I think that makes sense. All yeah. right, last one. One thing people should know about you, but they don't. I think I've already revealed all my secrets, but just being like a little bit of a, I think a little bit of a nerd, so getting really excited about all this tech stuff and particularly in the beauty space, but gaming. I honestly, I promise next time we connect, I'm going to be a Twitch streamer. It's going to be happening. (laughs) I'm just like very obsessed with gaming at the moment. And I think, yeah, everyone talks Travis Scott and Fortnite, but there's so much other cool stuff happening in the space. And it's where we all need to be. There's a Nintendo Switch on level three of our office in Melbourne. So I'm intending to claim that and start playing Animal Crossing. Love it. I can't wait to see it. I'll be like, where's Annika? And you're up on level three. (laughs) You know, we've been talking about beauty and so my grandma, so she's Malaysian and in 1953, she was actually crowned Miss Max Factor and she went to Hollywood when Max Factor was like the makeup artist to the stars. She met so many like Hollywood stars at the time. She still has an autograph book, but I'm here today because of that, because she then went back to Malaysia And my grandpa, who was working in an ad agency at the time, needed a model for a campaign and they said, use Miss Max Factor. And that's how they met. And then they moved over here and here I am. So I feel like I'm just (laughs) inherently connected to, it's like, it's like a beautiful kind of madman story, but um, I feel like I'm inherently like connected to. (laughs) to That is amazing. You are the original Australian madman version. (laughs) That is great. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you both for joining. You are absolutely amazing guests and we hope to have you back really soon. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Human Element. You can find us anywhere you can find your pods. Give us a like, subscribe, or send us a note. We'll be back out to you real soon. In the meantime, be well.